1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. With high rates of infanticide and disease, not many of us pine for an era before human civilization, farms and nations. Yet historians Yuval Noah Harari and Jared Diamond have called the agricultural revolution a trap in humanity's worst mistake, arguing hunter-gatherer life was more leisurely and free as humans were not tied down to private property or oppressed by hierarchy. So, is there a way to keep the benefits of industry and technology while also living as freely as our untamed ancestors? Should we go further and rewild to escape the status, hierarchy, and oppression of current civilization? Or is this an impossible fantasy, born out of the misunderstanding of anthropology, history, and the idealistic myth of the noble savage. Joining us to debate the civilization trap are paleobiologist Mark Williams, conservative former cabinet minister Peter Lilly, and former leader of the Green Party Natalie Bennett. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Ganesh Taylor.
0: Good evening, everybody. My name is Ganesh Taylor. I'm your host this evening for this debate called The Civilization Trap. So to our speakers to help us navigate this this evening, um, we have Mark Williams, who is a professor of paleobiology at the University of Leicester. He is the co-author of popular science books, The Goldilocks Planet, Ocean Worlds and Skeletons, The Frame of Life. We're also joined by Peter Lilly, who is a British conservative politician and member of the House of Lords. He was a cabinet minister in the governments of Margaret Thatcher and John Major and has been a long-term critic of the European Union. And we're also joined by Natalie Bennett, who served as the leader of the Green Party from 2012 to 2016. And she has also contributed to The Times, The Guardian, The Independent, amongst many, many other publications. So thank you very much, uh, all of you, for joining. As I'm sure you're very familiar at this point in the day, the format of these debates is, I'm gonna throw a question out there, and each one of our speakers is gonna have three minutes to answer that. If they go over three minutes, I'm going to start fidgeting and looking deeply uncomfortable, and if it goes any further than that, we may or may not be rugby tackling them off the stage. So with no further ado, um, the question, and I will pose it first to you, Mark, is are Yuval Harari and Jared Diamond right to call the agricultural revolution humanity's worst mistake? Mark, take it away.
2: Okay, so I'm going to give you the perspective of a natural scientist because that's what I am. And I'm also gonna try to give a voice to that part of nature that has no voice. So you and I are eight billion. We and our farm animals are more than 95% of the mass of all land mammals. You and I are more than 99% of the numerical abundance of all apes and monkeys on this planet. We are a species like no other in terms of our ability to, to dominate both land and sea, and it's like no other in 4 billion years of Earth evolution. So that's unprecedented. And agriculture is certainly a component of our ability to dominate the Earth system, but it's only one part of a much bigger process, which has unfolded over many tens of thousands of years, one that has been driven by you and I, this species. And it's accelerated in the last couple of centuries as we learn to command the energy of oil and gas and coal. So a much bigger process than just agriculture alone. So for you and I, again, these are the best of times. We are protected from disease, notwithstanding the ongoing uh, COVID pandemic. We're well fed. We are protected from natural disasters. For the dogs and cats that come along with us, it's also a great time to be alive. For almost everything else in nature, it's a pretty bad time to be alive. It's the worst of times. So over the past 10 millennia, you and I and our ancestors have stripped the biosphere by 50% of its mass. And we are now such huge agents of change that we're on the brink of precipitating a mass extinction on this planet. Now, for me as a geologist, that's amazing for one species, amazing in a bad way for one species to be able to do that. And it means it elevates you and I to the level of giant asteroid strikes and supermassive volcanic eruptions in terms of our destructive capacity. In a few generations now, unless we change our patterns, we will shift the Earth into a whole series of different states. It will be hotter, there will be fewer species, it will be much less hospitable to us. So if those are the unforeseen consequences of our actions over tens of thousands of years, the mistakes, if you like, to hark back to the the original question, then I still don't think it is beyond our wit to actually intervene and stop this and make the world a better place. Now, we cannot go back to be hunter-gatherers. That is an impossible wish because that style of life, no matter how good it is and how sustainable it was, will only sustain a few millions of us. And we are eight billion. So we can't do that, but we can live much more beneficially with the rest of nature and with each other also. There are many things that we can do. We can consume less. There are easy ways that we can consume less. We can think about redesigning cities like London along the lines of natural ecologies. Instead, at the moment, they're gigantic parasites eating their way through the Earth system. So that has to stop, has to change. We can use less damaging forms of agriculture, and also we can think about economies that are much more predicated on regeneration, recycling, and perhaps also mutual exchange of goods and ideas. If we do that, and this is my pitch for civilization, then I think we can live well and we can preserve civilization. But you cannot have the former. You cannot live well unless you enable the latter. You give the rest of life space also.
0: Fabulous. Thank you, Mark. Well, Peter, your thoughts? Well,
3: I read uh, Sapiens by um, whatever his name is, uh, Yuval Harari, uh, and I wasn't entirely convinced uh, that life was so much better when we were hunter-gatherers. Maybe he's right. Maybe they had a wonderful life, varied diet, short working week. Um, no, that's what he argues, and uh, the lack of harak and all that sort of thing. But I'm sceptical because I can't see why people have, would have moved to agriculture if it was so much worse. Unless, of course, they had hunted their territory to um, close to extinction or till uh, there wasn't enough um, berries for them to collect and animals for them to kill. And then at that point, it was less bad going to agriculture than being a nomad. But anyway, so well, There's not much we can do about it. As uh, Mark says, we, uh, we can't do anything about it now. We are eight billion. We've got to cope with the planet. One thing I have noticed is that though the impact of mankind on the planet uh, has been dramatic, the most extinct, uh, species were extinguished when man first reached new continents. Uh, whole species, all large mammals, were largely wiped out in uh, Australia. Uh, you are correct me. I'm sort of looking to you. I'm not the expert on this. I did one term's geology at university um, uh, when I was a natural scientist. But uh, most of the extinctions happened then. Recently, there have been an awful lot of us, and that's put pressure on the pamphlet, uh, planet. But actually, the most developed countries are putting less uh, pressure and are doing more to uh, preserve species, to avoid extinctions and it's important that we continue that. I don't think the answer is to go backwards, but to go forward.
0: Mm.
4: Compelling. Well, Natalie, your thoughts? Uh, Well, I first of all want to agree with pretty well every word that Mark just said, except for one angle, which is the idea that we as a human species are doing well in this current environment. If we think about what civilization might be, civilization for us should be delivering us health it should be delivering us respect. It should be delivering us freedom. And the current systems we have are not doing any of those. Uh, now, Peter talked about the um, uh, the way in which perhaps we had to go to farming for um, uh, to get the calories we needed 10,000 years or so ago. Uh, there was actually some climate change going on at the, at the time, but perhaps I won't bring up climate change very specifically. Uh, we might start another debate. But what we have now is we have about an equal number of people in the world who are suffering from obesity as are suffering from malnutrition, from a lack of calories. We have more than 50% of human calories come from just four crops. This is deeply unhealthy. The current food production, yeah we're talking about agriculture and food production. We're not only trashing the planet, we're creating a supremely unhealthy diet. In Britain, 68% of calories come from ultra-processed food, which is PAP that is extraordinarily bad for our health and well-being. In terms of respect, um, we surely should have, be aiming for, if we think of defining civilisation, a society in which everyone is valued and their contribution is valued. But what we have is a deeply unequal society in which a few people are able to consume, vacuum up a huge amount of resources and huge numbers of people even in the UK, can't put food on the table, keep a roof over their head. I just saw a figure last week from the US. You know, most developed nation on the planet, 8% of people in one week said that they couldn't get enough food to eat. I would say that's a profound disrespect and a profoundly dysfunctional system. And in terms of the third thing, freedom. Um, a lot of this, the introduction talks about our working hours and you know, hunter-gatherers is to some degree speculative, although there's some good evidence from modern day hunter-gatherers, but medieval peasants worked 150 days a year. What we've got now is a situation where working hours are expanding and expanding and expanding. Young people to find their way in the world are working virtually every minute. They've got three side hustles. They've got to feed their Instagram feed. They've got to feed their Twitter feed. They're selling themselves. You've got to do this to get ahead all the time. I would say that what we've created is a society that's really bad for the planet, and really, really bad for people, and is not at all civilised. Fascinating start. Okay, what a corker. I mean, so I mean, it also leads into the first
0: sort of question that I wanted to ask, actually, which is, you know, effectively, how do we how do we determine the best way for humanity to function? So how how is that decision come to? How do we do that? What do you, what do you think, Mark?
2: Um, So from my perspective, the best way to function is to remodel our ecologies on those of natural ecologies. So um, I talked about the city. I talked about London as a city, for example, and, you know, about 50 percent of the global population now lives in cities. And as Natalie's correctly mentioned, there's a huge disparity of wealth within cities and between cities. But nevertheless, cities consume about about 70% of the energy, which is a colossal amount of energy already um, that that we consume, Um, and also they're responsible for about 70% of, of pollution. And if we could just start to remodel our cities along the lines of natural ecologies, and that's both the physical processes in those cities, but also the relationships between people in those cities, then I think we could, get, we could go a long way forward. So let me just ask you a question. I mean, there's very basic, simple things that we can do. In, in your bathrooms, how many bathrooms do you have where the gray water from the sink replenishes the toilet bowl? I bet none of you here can actually say that that's the case. And yet there is a huge amount of water flushed down the toilet in cities. It's about 20% of the municipal municipal, um, water usage. And we're talking tens of kilometers, tens of cubic kilometers of water with all the embedded energy to get it into your house and get it out of your house. So even very simple things like that, starting to think about the way that a natural ecosystem would recycle materials and regenerate materials can actually take us a long way forward, I think.
0: Mm. What are you thinking?
3: I'm thinking that the question presupposes that there is someone at the top, namely us, very intelligent people who are going to be in charge, deciding how other people are going to live. And I don't like that. I prefer people to decide, that, make their own decisions to interact, mm. to, um, obviously, the amount they consume will depend on how much they produce. It'll depend on the costs of things, which will make them economize and things. Uh, but I don't like the idea of somebody saying that I've got to recycle my bathwater. If it's uh, an efficient thing to do, I'll do it. Uh, and You know, if we have to pay for our water, which we now do through our water meter, I'll probably do it. But uh, I just, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a, a freedom lover. And I notice that most of the good things in life have come about spontaneously. We're speaking in a language. It didn't require a central grammarian to lay down the rules of grammar. It developed by spontaneous reaction between individuals. Most of the best things in life result from spontaneous interaction between individuals, not by some dictator at the top or dictating group telling us all how to run our lives.
0: I'm going to abuse my, my, my host seat here. Do you, do you, when you say that, you know, your, your vision of these kinds of things, do you, do you envisage a government telling people what to do? Do, do you envisage that centrality that, that Peter's alluding to? Or did you mean that more as a personal agency thing? I'm curious.
2: Well, well, I think it should be personal agency, but I also think that government should direct in a way that's going to benefit the, the whole of society. And I, if I can just come back to Peter's point, you know, if you're on a space station and water is finite, you recycle all of the water You do that because it's a matter of life and death. And now the way we are using resources on this planet, it is a matter of life and death not just for you and me, but for the whole of life on this planet. So that's the analogy I would say. We're on a space station drifting through space. It's just a bigger one.
0: It's really interesting. I mean, of course, the question says, I mean, there's the how part of it. Like, how do we go about doing it? Who effectively, which you're talking about. But also, like, what is best and what is function in this context? And I feel like you you mentioned that a little bit, Natalie. I mean, what are you, what are you thinking? Well, I think in this? terms of
4: decision making, you know, what I really want is democratic decision making. Uh, and democracy to be a really good idea if we had one. Um, and we don't have one in the UK we don't have one in the US um, we have a situation to take for example the UK um, in the last election Boris Johnson won 44 percent of the votes and got hundred percent of the power most people voted against Boris Johnson we got him anyway I want to see far more power in local communities uh, for, as well as power in Westminster being decided democratically we have the most centralized government in the in the um, in Europe with power concentrated in Westminster put the power out into to the cities and allow the cities to acknowledge that there's a huge cost through that. And at the moment, you know, we have privatised water companies. Who decides? It's a pri- how it all works. It's a privatised water company, uh, almost certainly owned by a hedge fund somewhere um, in the Cayman Islands or somewhere that's taking massive profits out every year and not changing the systems to the systems we need. And in terms of, you know, Peter suggested that oh well, people can make individual choices. You can make those choices if you've got the money. You can remodel your house for a lovely grey water system if you've got the resources to do it. And I was just talking in the the student tent um, and people were were saying, you know, the problem with doing green things is they're more expensive, you know, environmentally friendly, socially responsible things to do. And that's because actually we're all bearing the cost, the environmental cost, the cost of treating all of that water that you're pumping through and not using as grey water. And who's profiting? Capitalism, so you know, uh, the prob- our problem uh, isn't civilization, it's capitalism. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah.
3: I believe, correct me again if I'm right, that the most developed countries, because their agriculture is now so much more efficient, have released back to reforestation an area the size of India. Uh, primitive agriculture is very inefficient. Uses a lot of it. it's slash and burn, first of all, and then it's uh, less efficient when it's not using uh, imports and probably so. Actually, capitalism, as you call it, has given us all the wealth and the opportunity to come here, but it also re- creates a better environment. If you compare the environment of capitalist countries with those of the former Soviet Union, where I've worked a lot, there's no comparison. Uh, this socialism is very bad for the environment. Capitalism is either good or less bad, depending how you look at it. But it's certainly less bad than socialism.
4: Well, first of all, to be clear, I'm not advocating socialism. Um, I'm advocating um, a kind of green political philosophy. But to to, to go back to that point, efficiency of industrial agriculture. Uh, It used to be back 150 years ago, uh, you put uh, one calorie into farming and you got about 12 calories of food out. Modern, quote-unquote, industrial agriculture, with all of those tractors running all of those times over the field, applying all of those chemicals, all those artificial fertilisers, nitrogen fertiliser, massive energy use, puts three calories in to get one calorie out. It actually chews through energy to produce that monoculture food of 50% of calories coming from one crop. Uh, It's horrendously inefficient. And you know, it's also, we have about 50 years of crops left in the world's soils. This is an agriculture form that has entirely destroyed its very foundations. And in terms of you know, claims for wildlife, uh, Britain is one of the worst countries on this planet for wildlife. State of nature report. We rank 164th in the world, that's bad, down the bottom of the scale. Um, Britain is a wildlife desert, and that's a large part a result of the form of agriculture we've had. Go
2: on. So I could just add a little bit to that. I just want to give you some basic figures as well. Um, So 50% of the habitable landscape is now converted over to farmland, and 70% of that is basically for for cattle or for the feed to feed cattle. So only 30% for cereal crops. Now, as a a scientist, I can tell you that between the grass and the cow, 90% of the energy is lost. So that is not an efficient way of farming in no way whatsoever. It's a very, very inefficient way way of farming. And in the UK, 73% of the land is now given over to agriculture. I defy you to take me anywhere in the UK landscape and show me a a natural landscape. And if you think going to the Lake District or North Wales is a natural landscape, no, it isn't. It's been completely deforested, it is completely degraded. And I do agree with Natalie on this point. Our landscape is very, very severely depleted.
0: I mean, it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? So you say this and you know, it's a very human reaction to say, gosh, that's terrible, what can we do about it? But I feel like the implication in what you're suggesting is that we should go, kind of go back, right? How to rewind effectively, to, to undo all these kinds of things, but I mean, is, is that what you're saying? And also, does that involve us
4: all having to go back to farming and, and feudal life? Or how, how does this look? <laughs> no, what we do is we take lots of the knowledge that we've lost and, and, and we've forgotten and combine it with our modern understandings. So a great example of this is um, uh, there's a book called Miraculous Abundance, which is written by the farmers um, in Farm Bec Elloween in uh, Normandy in France. And they take a thousand square metres of land, and that produces from one person's labour fruit and vegetables enough to produce a rural French income of 22,000 euros a year, which is a very good rural French income. It produces huge quantities of fresh fruits and vegetables. It works on permaculture and agroecological principles. is organic, um, and so what it does is it uses knowledge. A lot of this knowledge was actually comes from um, historically the market gardeners around Paris 100 years ago used to produce, do things like use, um, they had a lot of uh, uh, manure from horses then, they produced tomatoes in March and April in Paris by using that heat. This is all knowledge and skills and what we need is far more science, far more understanding. We're now coming to, farmers 100 years ago understood that you had to look after the soil. There was a 1930s Italian proverb that said, artificial fertiliser is good for the father and bad for the son. They understood that applying that fertiliser was trashing the soil. We we, we lost that knowledge. We recover that knowledge. We combine it with our understanding now, far more understanding about soil science, about human microbiomes. This is the kind of science and understanding agroecology permaculture We need new understandings, new things, but this is the science, the kind of science we need. I mean, maybe I'm- I'm
3: surrounded by experts in farming, neither of whom I think farm. Farmers would probably use a more efficient system if it was available, as Natalie tells them, or as Mars tells them, but it it isn't. Actually, I am a small farmer in a small way. I have a small farm in France with 12 lambs and six sheep and 18 geese and 40 chickens on it. Uh, and it's wonderfully eco-friendly, You'd be, but it's incredibly inefficient. And uh, the, I think if we gave you a 100-acre farm, you would be bankrupt within six months. Uh, I think Mark would be bankrupt in three years. Uh, I would be bankrupt in about two months. Farmers know quite a lot about farming. Don't trust armchair farmers to tell you how to run the agricultural industry of this country. The Echo uh, enthusiast, what was his name? The chap who wrote uh, um, Crash of 75, who said that the world was going to run out of food by 1975, there'd be 10 10 million dead by uh, that time and so on. They eventually made him a member of the Royal Society. It was nonsense. The advances in agriculture have enabled us to feed eight billion people with less land than we were feeding six billion people.
0: I mean, I'm also struck by the fact that and none of you have disagreed with the use of science to optimize effectively. Again, I should disclaimer for those of you in the audience, I'm a, I'm a molecular biologist, I'm a scientist as well. So I like to hear things like optimization wherever I go. But, um, you know, it sounds like you're all on board with the using of tech technology and science to improve the efficiency of the system is that is that at least a common thread that we can find between us i
4: I think the question is what kind of science and what we've relied on over the past few decades has dominated our science as an extremely reductive model um, that's looked for silver bullets that said oh um the plants we want to get more yield we'll throw some more nitrogen fertilizer on and that'll get more yield without thinking about what will that do to the soil microbes, what will that do to the long-term security structure of the soil, uh, all of those things have been short-term. And I would say, you know, the farmers now, the leading farmers now, I I visited a farmer over um, in uh, Shropshire, um, maize farmer, maize corn, a huge problem in terms of damage to soil structure. And he was doing lots of different experiments with with undercrops, with planting various legumes to protect the soil and look after. But, you know, we keep coming back to capitalism because he said to me, this seed, the vetch costs 20 pounds a kilo for, for seed, This costs 15 pounds a kilo, this costs 12 pounds a kilo. And the supermarket won't pay me enough for my maize, or or the um, the cattle feed merchant won't pay me enough for my maize to actually do that. So we have a system where farmers have been forced into more and more production. And in this country in particular, we've destroyed all of the government independent agricultural extension. So it's all come from the seed companies, the fertilizer companies, that's where the information to farmers has come from. Um, And it's wrecked our land. And if you go to the Oxford Farming Conference, you will hear more and more mainstream general farmers saying, we have to change. The NFU and the Soil Association are getting closer and closer every year. Well, splendid.
3: Uh, I mean, if, if your arguments and your evidence and your science works, uh, I'm sure scientists as uh, farmers will lack it, lap it up. They want to do things that are more efficient, not less efficient. Things that will give them yield without destroying their soil, rather than things that, which won't give them a yield and will destroy their soil. They are not stupid farmers. The idea, however, that people who know nothing about farming, like this panel here, except for me who in a small way I know how to lose money on a small farm, uh, should should dictate just don't believe it. Look at what happened in the Soviet Union when politicians took over farming. The breadbasket of the world was turned into a huge importer of food. Ukraine. The massive famines took place. So just please don't for a moment give any credence
2: to armchair farmers? So, so if I could come in this, at this point, I honestly do not want to dictate to any of you what you do in your lifestyles, but if we carry on as we are at present, then you know that this is going to be catastrophic in a, in a few generations. Um, I, I think this, there are ways to wind back and I think we started on this, this conversation with, with winding back and also then we, we, we talked about technology. So, so technology can be part of the solution but technology is not going to save you. You're often peddled ideas on the media that technology is going to come along and be your great salvation. So you might all decide to go and drive electric cars, for example, and that will certainly help in the near term in terms of the carbon emissions to the atmosphere, but it won't help in the long term because the same embedded problems are there. So technology is part of the solution, but you and I have to change our behaviour. So I support farmers. I'm not against farmers in any way whatsoever. But if I reel off the statistics to you again, since the 1960s, meat production, meat consumption on planet Earth has doubled. It's, 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 go, it's, it's not wonderful because of the, the loss of energy between grass and cow. It's a 90% loss. And the amount of energy coming in, it's a lot of energy, but the grass also struggles to fix it as well. So that's not sustainable in the long term. And I will just add to that, if we carry on, if we all decide we want a meat-rich diet like Argentina or Australia or or North America, then you can kiss goodbye to all of the forests on this planet and you can kiss goodbye to the wildlife too. But if you change your behavior, If you eat less meat, you can make a big difference, and you can allow large areas of the planet to become reforested, stabilizing the climate climate, stabilizing those ecosystems. You really can make a difference, but it also involves behavioral change. It's not just technology.
4: and I are agreeing on lots of things but I also want to stress that um, what we need is system change not climate change and it's all very well to say to people um, you know we can't have anything like one-for-one replacement between fossil fuel cars and electric cars. But unless you make walking and cycling safe and convenient Unless you provide buses into rural areas, unless you give people an alternative that doesn't mean the train costs ten times as much as it would to drive a car, then people just are not, it's not available to people. We have to make the environmentally sensitive. Socially responsible thing to do, the easiest, cheapest, and simplest thing to do. So people don't have to choose, that's just naturally what you do. And that's what system change means. Kind of, I mean, I kind of want to go back to, to the
0: sort of original question here, though, which is this idea that if we actually rewind back to this sort of other form of agriculture or the sort of historic way of doing things that somehow we would end up escaping the current woes that we have in terms of status hierarchy and oppression of the modern civilization explicitly and i feel like that's kind of a big claim isn't it to suggest that the that the entire bedrock of our society and framework of seeing the world is down to how we farm our food and i'm I'm obviously not an expert in this but i'm i'm curious as to whether or not we think that if we did make changes like that, we would actually see this radical shift in the entire fabric of our society or not.
4: Well, I'll start on that. And I was talking about system change and anyone who tells you changing one thing will fix everything immediately distrust everything else they say. Because any one change, the idea that we can just change one thing, pull one magic switch of policy and that will change everything, of course that's not the case. But with different kind of farming goes with a different kind of economic system, goes with a different kind of social system. So let's imagine I was talking before about you know a universal basic income society, a society that gives everyone enough money every week to meet their basic needs. And people can buy the food they choose, not the the food that they're forced to buy now, the ultra-processed PAP. You're forced to buy it. They are economically forced to buy it. Do you buy it? No, because I'm I'm wealthy. But the people who are not wealthy... Fresh vegetables are cheap. A healthy diet... This was reported in The Telegraph. A healthy diet costs three times what an unhealthy diet does. People are forced to buy the ultra-processed pack because they don't have the income. They don't have the time. The longest working hour, second longest working hours in Europe, the, we commute on average twice the rest of time the rest of Europe. People don't have the time, the energy, the resources to eat a healthy diet. Um, and so t- to answer your question, you, know, you can't just change the agriculture because people have to be able to afford it. They have to have the time to cook it. So this is all part of a system change. Um, agriculture is just one part of that system change.
2: I, I could speak to that, but I'll probably add, add more statistics to this. And I, I, just, I just want to give you another statistic because it's, it's the want of scientists to do this. To build on re- really what Natalie said about systems change. And so the red bill collier is the most um, abundant bird in nature. It's about 1.5 billion of them. Um, it's a beautiful bird, small bird, very tiny, doesn't weigh much. So you and I eat 63 billion chickens every year on planet Earth at any one time, there are 21 billion chickens. That's a really sad fact and it harks back to some of the original arguments that were made at the beginning about this that's not a good way to treat the rest of nature and so we do need fundamental change I think and we do need to change our behavior when we are when in the way that we're consuming but also I talked about water systems but you know the earth system is a complex system of energy there is earth there is air there is water you've got to change all of those it's not a simple task but if you don't start this journey now within a few generations it will be a really serious situation for us and the rest of nature so systems changes what we need? I think Macaulay said, how is it that when looking back, we
3: see nothing but progress, while looking forward, we see nothing but disaster? Uh, There is something in the human mind that sort of focuses on disasters, most of which prove imaginary. Uh, It's sort of, I don't know, I suppose it's uh, part of our evolution that we had to be more worried about potential disasters, disasters about the saber-tooth tiger coming and ripping us into bits than we did about the fact that it might not be a saber-tooth tiger, but just the person from the neighboring cave. But uh, don't, don't get too worried. We have been, technology has been wonderful for us. It has made us all better fed, better clothed, more leisure, more time to come to festivals like this. We can spend all our time, if we're foolish enough, on our mobile phones talking to each other and our relatives in Australia. Uh, the idea that it's all going to go to pot and that we've got to suddenly stop it and go backwards to a degrowth society uh, where everything's controlled from our water to our meat supplies to our food, where we have armchair farmers farming the, co- the country and we hope that that's going to survive us, provide us with enough food. Uh, that would be the disaster. That's something to worry about. But just leave a free society to carry on uh, with free enterprise and competition and regulation of uh, things that impinge on others that are damaging to them, uh, and we will continue to be a more healthy and prosperous society just as we have been over the last few generations.
4: Imaginary disasters. I don't think Peter's been watching the news. (laughs) (laughs) Fires, floods, droughts, hurricanes, all of these things are stepping up. And I think, you, um, Mark, you talked about you know, future generations having to worry. We have to worry about the state the earth is in right now. And you know, look at the people in Germany, a very developed, very technologically advanced society that got hit by massive floods with a huge death toll. That's in Germany. That's what's happening around the world. We're seeing fires menacing major cities in Australia. We've seen whole towns in America wiped out by wildfires. We have a planet profoundly out of balance. And this is not a problem for future generations. We are right at a crisis point now. We're at 1.1 degrees of pre-industrial levels now. And we've all through COVID become very familiar with the idea of exponential growth. And the level of damage we see from each 0.1 degree increase in in temperature grows on an exponential scale and you know back in Paris in 2015 then the world agreed to aim for not increasing by more than 1.5 degrees and at that time that was seen as a bit of a sock to the small island nations you know those nations like Vanuatu and the Maldives that were going to disappear so the world went pat on the head yeah yeah we'll try and 1.5 for you now we realise that basically even in 1.5, above 1.5, we lose the coral reefs, the world's coral reefs. We lose, you know, we get things onto a scale of massive damage even there. And there was a figure out last week. We could hit 1.5 in 2025, 2025, 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. This is not imaginary disasters. This is disaster right now. Um, well, you I, think, I think Mark, Mark is allowed in here. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. That's
3: okay. laughs> you can, but, um, <laughs> it, you can only tell into. whether there's been a trend in disasters by looking at a series of years. You can't just look at one year. Okay, there was a bunching of wildfires, but have wildfires been increasing uh, progressively over a period of time? Well, not according to the IPCC.
2: Mm, No, 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 Yes, they have. I read the report this week. (laughs) There's a new
0: report. Okay. (laughs) Sorry,
3: sorry. uh, Have have wildfires where they have not been giving up the old methods of controlling forestry, which were controlled burning, and instead they've left all the dead wood around, that's been a big problem in California. Anyway, uh, so we've got to look at all the conceivable disasters there have been when you look at the trend of deaths from natural disasters, it is down. There are only 10% as many people dying now from natural disasters as there used to be 50 or 60 years ago. When I was young, I had to live through, or live through, I saw, the Linton and Limuth floods, far worse anything in Germany, the East Anglian floods, hundreds of people killed. These things happen from time to time. They may be getting worse. We have to decide whether it's better To spend money preventing them happening by decarbonising the economy, or coping with them uh, and preventing, you know, fires, for example, taking place uh, by uh, adaptation. So far, humans have been brilliant at adaptation, and I believe we will continue to be brilliant at adaptation. So again, don't get too worried, by Natalie.
0: So I'm gonna. I'm sorry, Mark. I just want to sort of re-steer us a little bit because I feel like we've really fixated on the on the sort of agricultural side of these things. The, the debate premise is also about this in general, the glorification of you know um, people's in, in bygone times, right? And there's a lot more to it than just how we, how we acquired our food. And you also uh, mentioned it at some point, Natalie, about the um, about how we spent our time and our days. And the sort of last theme was supposedly about, um, you know, whether or not we can use technologies to, to sort of uh, overcome the divisions of our culture, or is this an impossible fantasy? And as we think about what we can do going forward, let's just sort of park the agricultural thing for a split second. You know, it, it, the question is basically, is it false for us to think that people were happier then? And were there other things apart from the agriculture that made them happy? And if so, what are, what are those things that we can bring forward? You mentioned the working day, for example. Um, I, I don't know what else you might want to bring into this, but you know, what is that romanticization that we're trying to get back to and what would our future look like if we started to indulge that?
4: Well, we know what makes people happy, the science is very clear. Spending time with friends and family, doing the things they want to do, or having the freedom to occupy themselves the way they choose. Um, no one lies on their deathbed and goes, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. So what does the future look like? The future looks like, as a starting point, a four-day working week as standard with no loss of pay, eventually going down to a three-day working week. Uh, Universal basic income, so you've got a security of income. And if that's going backwards, which indeed, you know, a medieval peasant worked on average 150 days a year, if we go back to that aspect of a medieval peasant's life, I doubt there's anyone in this room who wouldn't say, great because think of all the things that you could do. You could do this every week. You could write that book, that novel you always thought you had in you. You could start a community garden. You could just spend more time with the grandkids that you just don't get to now. Time, there is nothing more precious than time. And the kind of models we're looking at is getting back time and making it our own, taking it back from the boss Taking it back from the state and making it our own—that's freedom. That's the future.
2: So, so th- this is a subject more difficult for me to talk about because because I'm a natural scientist, and I'm going to hijack the conversation for a minute. I'm sorry, Goodish, because Fine. I've got I've got <laughs> to respond to Peter's <laughs> comments oh, please, about about <laughs> you not being worried. So um, Natalie's already referred to the the 1.5 degree um, rise in temperature, but of course the acidification of the oceans is really the major driving force also of coral coral reef decline. And I'm sorry to say this, but the last time corals were made extinct on this planet, it was about seven million years until they appeared again. If you want to live in a world like that, then we carry on as before. And the problems we face now are minuscule, By the end of this century, most of the world's deltas will be underwater. What do you do with 100 million people in the Ganges delta region when they're displaced by that? And how do they farm? Mm. How do they how do they feed themselves? So that this is what we're seeing at present is a small the small beginnings of a pattern which is going to be much, much Mm -hmm. worse. So we have to start to live in the way that Natalie's talking about. We have to start to think about the mutually beneficial things we can do for each other so that we make a much better society, so that we can prepare ourselves for what is coming in due course.
0: I don't feel you said that we shouldn't prepare ourselves, did you?
2: No, I said we should. No, on the
3: contrary. I said we have to make a choice between spending trillions of dollars trying to prevent climate change happening, which is one option, or perhaps spending rather less adapting to climate change. Actually, we may not have any choice because the decision won't be taken by us as to whether the world continues to emit lots of carbon dioxide. It will be taken by the people of China, India, Africa, and Latin America. And all probability, they will decide that they prefer to increase their incomes at the expense, possibly, of increasing temperature by 0.1 or 2 degree, 0.1 degree a decade. uh, in which case, whatever we do will have no effect. I think that's mathematically the case, well, whatever we do in this country or in, in say, in Europe as a whole. So uh, we, we may not have a choice. Now, of course, if we are able to persuade in October the rest of the world to follow our splendid example and legislate for zero carbon, then uh, mitigation may be the option. But if it isn't, we will be faced with adaptation and we will have to adapt. But on your point, you said the, the world's going to be underwater by the end of the century. By how much are you
2: expecting the sea level to rise? So, not the, world, so the world won't be underwater. No, no, but, I mean but, bits but the, of the world. But the major delta regions of the world will be underwater at present present rates of sea level rise. And, and that includes the Ganges Brahmaputra. So that, that alone displace, right. displaces 100 million people. Well, uh, then you have uh, the Mekong. But, but, but,
3: but, but so, the Hang-on, the World Bank did uh, a study and said that the Bangladesh alone could afford, with one year's GDP, to prevent that
4: happening. Uh, I'm going to bring this, we're almost out of time, I'm going to bring this really concrete. You can choose to build the flood walls higher and higher, pour huge amount of concrete into the flood walls, or you can choose to insulate people's homes so everyone has a warm, comfortable, affordable to heat home, as indeed insulate Britain is calling for. You can um, replace current private transport with public transport, clean up the air, give everyone healthier lungs, and cut our climate emissions. The things that we do for the climate are also the things that can give us a better society. So let's aim for that better society for people and planet.
0: Please can you put your hands together and thanks to our wonderful speakers, (laughs) Natalie, Peter, Mark.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.